listening to Literature Done Juicy, a show that explores books in the juiciest way possible. My name's Jade and we're finally starting season two. This season, the novels we'll be having a look at will be featuring lost protagonists. So that's the new theme, books that have lost narrators or protagonists. Whether they are physically, mentally or metaphorically lost, I'll have it all covered. This is episode one of the second season and the novel that we'll be discussing is The Ruins by Scott Smith. This episode is following on from the final episode in our first season, which was episode 12, and that season had the theme of a dark fiction. So if you haven't checked it out yet, definitely go and do it. I've also decided to change up the format of the episodes. So you guys have told me that you prefer the episodes where I focus on just the one book instead of multiple books that encapsulate one theme. So from now on, every episode will just be the one book, which obviously will be tied into the season's theme, which again is Lost Protagonists. I also think that me just speaking about the one book will allow me to dive deeper into it and stay more focused instead of, you know, jumping around from topic to topic. The book today we'll be discussing is The Ruins, which was written by Scott Smith, who has only actually written two books in his life. The first book he ever published was Simple Plan, which was published back in 1993, and then this novel, which was The Ruins, and it was released 13 years later from Simple Plan. Now, The Ruins is a survival horror novel which was first published in 2006 and it tells the story of a group of six young tourists who embark on a vacation in Mexico only to find themselves trapped in a remote and mysterious Mayan archaeological site known to them as The Hill. The main characters in the novel are Eric, Stacy, Jeff, Amy, Pablo and Matthias, all of whom are vacationing in Cancun. Matthias is a German tourist who is actually in search of his brother, uh, Heinrich, and the youth, so Eric, Stacy, Jeff, and Amy and Pablo, all agree to accompany him to the ruins in the jungle where Heinrich was last seen. Pablo is actually a Greek man named Dimitri who names himself Pablo and he kind of serves as a guide within the story, but there's this whole discussion within the book about why he's changed his name. So once they arrive at the ruins, they are met with hostility from a group of local Mayan villagers who warn them to leave the area immediately. However, the group ignores the warnings and decides to explore the site anyway, and then they quickly realise that they're in a very perilous situation. As they venture deeper into the jungle and climb the hill, they discover that the vines with red flowers on the site are alive and hostile, and then this leads to gruesome encounters. The Ruins obviously hits the brief for lost protagonists as it's the young travellers who follow this unknown path and then end up stuck in an unknown location fighting for their lives. The novel's distinct lack of chapters serves to ratchet up the tension and unease, rendering it nearly impossible to set aside. It evokes shades of the relentless narrative style which is found in Blood Meridian, which we actually discuss in season one of the pod, where there's just little room for respite within the pages. In the ruins, there is often another character's harrowing perspective of the same dire situation, which then intensifies the impact of the horrific moments encountered. The book maintains a relentless grip on the reader, frequently blindsiding them with the fates of its characters and delves deeply into their endured pain and suffering. The author deftly constructs an incredibly surreal scenario by emphasising tangible elements, so things such as the scorching daytime heat or the rain or the cold of the night. Crucially, the book captures the agonisingly slow passage of time during which the youth can do nothing but wait, both miserably and hopefully for rescue. 
In a harrowing incident which occurs quite early in the novel, Pablo tumbles down a mine shaft, fracturing his back, and his anguished screams echo for hours, punctuated by intermittent shrieks in the days that follow. So his screaming is just constant. The vines have a corrosive nature and there's these juices that they secrete, intensifies the suffering of all those that are ensnared by it. The characters will remove the vines from their bodies after they sleep or if they're searching through hidden corpses or parts of the hill and it will actually result in their skin searing. The substance also adheres to clothing much like it does in the film adaptation, which we will get into. But even when it is in contact on the clothes, it causes the little spores to burst, which inflict painful burns. Pablo's descent down the well is a consequence of the vine becoming entangled in the winch, which is lowering him, which causes the rope to snap because of the burning from the liquid that the vine secrete. There's also this really gross part within the book where Stacy, one of the characters, uh, is discreetly offering to you know help out Eric with some physical warmth and some familiarity. So she gives him like a hand job. But then in the morning, Eric discovers that the plant is like tangled around his penis, and then the like the acid it's secreting is like all over his genitals. So it was like quite rank. So who are the characters? So we'll start off with Jeff. He is one of the main characters and he's in a relationship with another character called Amy. Jeff is this practical Boy Scout type who almost enjoys the crisis because it kind of lets him flex his problem-solving skills and he's basically the leader of the group. Then there's Amy, who is Jeff's girlfriend, and she's another central character in the story. She is portrayed as caring and compassionate. As the group faces increasing danger and uncertainty, her character does undergo significant development, and she becomes a focal point of the novel's tension. Now, Eric is Amy's brother and is part of the group. He is a medical student and initially appears as knowledgeable and resourceful. When Pablo falls down the shaft, Eric goes down to help him and he scrapes his knee and gets the vine inside his wound. Eric then becomes convinced that there's this plant growing inside him and he gets more and more unstable as a result as he tries to figure out how to get this plant out. There's also no reason to believe that Eric is correct in his assumption that the vine's in his body. It's very Lovecraftian how he's convinced that his own body has betrayed him, even though there's no direct evidence for the reader. Stacy is Jeff and Amy's friend and is traveling with her boyfriend, who is Eric, and she's this typical young tourist who's initially carefree and somewhat naive. She's also a bit promiscuous and actually wears thongs, so flip-flops, to go and walk through the jungle. Matthias is a German tourist who's actually looking for his brother and he's kind of the person who initiates this like search for the hill. Matthias um, has a mysterious side because he can't speak English very well and I guess also he's the reason that all of them are you know walking to the hill in the first place. And then the final character is Pablo who's actually called Dimitri. He is a Greek tourist who actually falls down the shaft on the hill and breaks his back and then Lady's legs are eaten by the plants. So one thing all of these characters have in common is not heeding the warning of locals and simply just making stupid decisions in general. The first thing that the young tourists did to get them into their predicament in the first place was ignore all the warning signs given to them by the locals. Scott Smith manages to decenter his characters from their positions of privilege, both on the localised scale through their interactions with the Indigenous populations, and then also on a global ecological scale where they're forced to reconsider their own humanity. 
When they first start their journey, the taxi drivers are reluctant to take the youth to the site. The local Mayan population attempts to dissuade the travellers with guns, and then there's this dense green foliage that's preventing them from easily accessing the dig site. Nevertheless, the group marches up the hill only to discover the vine covering the hillside is not only carnivorous but sentient. And to keep the plant quarantined, the Mayans refuse to let the group retreat from the hill, and as the days go painfully by, the vine systematically preys upon each traveller. The irony of the danger happening in the wilderness instead of in a city such as Cancun, it's not lost. Major cities in general are typically unsafe places and I'll just go through the September recent news of 2023 of Cancun. So this is from the 1st of September until the 20th. So these are all reports and articles and here's the list. So we have a suspect in custody for murder and dismemberment. A suspect wanted for a stabbing in 2022. More than a dozen women rescued from human trafficking rink. A kidnapping cell leader wanted for murder in Cancun. Parents of a battered girl found wandering the streets with a tethered arrest. An Indian national arrested after 47 Indians were locked in a Cancun hostel. A Cancun woman arrested on drugs and weapon charges. A worker with third degree burns after a construction site explosion in Cancun. A Cancun journalist set to receive damages and a public apology after a police attack. A Cancun passenger killed in a targeted shooting, an armed pair apprehended after a chase through the streets of Cancun, a Cancun man facing 16 years in prison from kidnappings, an armed pair found by GPS after a daytime robbery outside a bank, Cancun police nabbing a drug dealer at a truck shop, drugs and vehicles seized in five search operations in Cancun, a mum and a hardware store in Cancun destroyed by a fire, and three Americans injured in a hotel crash in Cancun. So that's literally all the articles that I could find between September 1st, September 20 this year of just incidents that were happening in Cancun. So it's yeah, very juxtaposed that the danger is occurring in the forest and not in the city itself. Not listening to locals is something quite common when Western tourists visit non-Western countries. There would indeed be a power play where these youth believe that they are above the Mayans, that the Mayans are inferior due to their difference in culture. And then this ignorance ends in the tourist's demise and is also the same type of ignorance that they have towards the vines. Now, having the vines down on a lower hierarchy is quite natural in terms of the way that Westerners interact with plants, and this can date back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So we'll go into Aristotle's theory on plants and the soul, and this theory is part of a broader philosophy on the nature of life and living beings. In his work on the soul, Aristotle classified living things into three categories, so plants, animals, and humans. And each of these categories possesses a different level of soul or life principle in which he referred to as the psyche. So number one is the vegetative soul, i.e. the plant soul. Aristotle believed that plants possess a vegetative soul, which is the lowest level of the soul hierarchy. The soul is responsible for basic life functions such as growth, nutrition, and reproduction. It's the principle that allows plants to take in nutrients from their environment, grow, and produce seeds. This soul does not have consciousness or sensory perception and is associated with a simple life process. The second up in the hierarchy is the sensitive soul, which is the animal soul. Animals, according to Aristotle, have a higher level of soul. This soul includes the capacities for perception, desire, and movement. Animals can sense their surroundings, experience pleasure and pain, and move in response to their sensory perceptions. The third and highest soul in the hierarchy is the rational soul, which is a human soul. So humans, in Aristotle's view, possess the highest level of soul. This soul encompasses all functions of the vegetative and sensitive soul, but adds the capacity for reason and rational thought. 
It enables humans to engage in abstract thinking, make moral judgments, and contemplate higher philosophical concepts. The vines and the ruins possess this remarkably intricate soul, suppressing the vegetative soul described by Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle have long characterized plants as occupying the most basic existence. The Aristotelian perspective on plants has played a significant role in perpetuating the belief that plant life is inferior. According to this viewpoint, plants are immobile, passive, and devoid of consciousness. Because of the historical connection between ancient philosophy and the concept of life being synonymous with motion, plants were often viewed as inferior due to their immobility. But paradoxically, plants were also seen as embodiments of excessive life as their growth was perceived as unrestricted by any defined form. In the absence of distinct shape, ontological plants were believed to proliferate endlessly, giving rise to organless bodies and invoking notions of mystical abundance. But this surplus in vitality also carried the menacing potential of an unstoppable invasion, eventually inspiring the creation of vegetal monsters in the realm of plant horror, which is what the ruins is all about. While plants lacked a specific form of their own, their deficiency endowed them with extraordinary vitality, a concept that resonated both in the ancient realm of philosophy and also in the modern domain of cinema. The dual nature of vegetal existence was initially succinctly articulated by a disciple of Aristotle, and I'm going to butcher his name, Theophrastus. So Theophrastus commenced his exploration into the inquiry of plants with an examination of plant components, only to encounter challenges due to mutable nature and indeterminate quality of plant parts, so he couldn't really compare it to anything else. From these findings of ancient philosophy, plants lacked agency and they do not warrant moral consideration. The horror genre thrives on the concept of the return of the repressed, and plant horror serves as this cautionary tale, warning human audiences against suppressing and disregarding plant life. Plants easily transform into monsters because they represent the ultimate other, they exist on the outer boundaries of our understanding, and have so since these philosophical times. However, something that's quite interesting is more recent scientific research has actually established that plants are sentient in their own way. They have many ways of sensing their surroundings, of communicating with their neighbours, and of flexibly changing their behaviours in response to their surrounding conditions, which could explain the behaviour of the vines within the ruins. This knowledge would also freak people out because it changes the perceived natural order and human identity creating this unease and discomfort because it challenges our established norms. This revelation would make us and also the characters within Scott Smith's novel feel lost due to these challenged beliefs. In the novel, the vine's persistent touch disrupts any sense of relief that Eric may find in proximity to Pablo when he's down in the mineshaft. There is a scene where Eric is alone with Pablo at the bottom of the shaft and he feels his pressure against his back as if a hand were touching him. He sees it as just his vine and then reassures himself that everything is fine. By referring to the vine as just touching his back, Eric diminishes its significance and places it into this position of inferiority as if it was an object devoid of agency, which would obviously be anyone's natural thought. The vine's complete ability to act as an agent in this scene only exacerbates the helplessness that Eric experiences. In this instant, the human who should be capable of affecting change is rendered powerless while the plant, which should be remaining passive, demonstrates agency. So have you ever heard of ecophobia? It's this genuine fear that takes nature and puts it on an entirely new level of fright. So just picture this scenario. You and a friend venture into this lush forest where the air is filled with chirping birds and leaves gently rustling, and then suddenly your friend experiences this full-blown panic attack. Why? 
because they're dealing with ecophobia, which is this deep-seated and irrational dread of the natural world. This phobia isn't your run-of-the-mill fear. It's visceral and a reaction to the mysterious, unpredictable, and uncontrollable aspects of nature. For those that are afflicted by it, a serene forest can become a heart-pounding horror show. In fact, you can consider the ruins as an extreme representation of what people with ecophobia might go through, just as the characters in the book confront an eerie and unpredictable environment in the ancient ruins. Individuals with ecophobia face their own unsettling fear every time they step into nature. A YouTube channel called Roanoke Gaming has published a 20-minute video discussing the plot of the film adaptation of The Ruins and what possible plant the vines could be. The guy who runs the show comes up with a synopsis that it could be from the Sundew family, which is a group of carnivorous plants with approximately 152 species. And I've left a link to his full video in the show notes. So sundews are usually found in tropical regions, especially in Australia, so yay for us, but they're also found in climates such as the location of the ruins in Mexico. Like the Venus flytrap, eating animals does not provide the plant with energy, but does supply them with nutrients. Sundews are known as the fastest carnivorous plant, which matches with the movements of the vines in the ruins. The way that sundews trap insects are by a sticky substance that attracts and traps the prey. The trap victim is then engulfed by the sticky tentacles and digestive enzymes. The vines in the book have tiny hair-like appendages that penetrate the victim's skin. Once the vines have made contact, they begin to embed themselves within the victim's body. They are equipped with a form of parasitic intelligence and they can manipulate the host body to some extent. They release chemicals that cause pain, fever and hallucinations and like the sundews, the vines secrete an enzyme that is acidic and burns the tourists when they touch it. The most common species, which is found in North America, is the roundleaf sundew, which has white or pink flowers with leaves with purple hairs. It doesn't really resemble the vine, but you can see where Scott Smith may have got his inspiration. The vine strangles Amy to death during the night, and then Jeff attempts to escape and seek help for the others amidst a torrential rainstorm, only to be shot to death by the locals with arrows, leaving Stacy as this sole survivor. She calmly and then resolutely descends to the base of the hill, sits down and then slits her wrists. Her intention is for her body to serve as a warning to any passers-by, but as she starts succumbing to her death, she feels the vines starting to drag her away, realising that her efforts are futile and also demonstrating that these vines are smart and in some way have this sentient way of thinking and understanding what she's trying to do. Obviously, the vines entering the body of the Taurus makes body horror a predominant element within the novel, and it's used to illustrate the physical loss of oneself in a disturbing and visceral manner. And of course, this body horror is predominantly affected by the vines. The vines secrete a corrosive substance, as we've discussed, that burns the character's skin. This results in severe chemical burns and disfigurement, causing physical agony and then altering the character's appearance. Their bodies are marred and scarred by these burns, further emphasising the loss of their normal physical selves. As the vines manipulate the bodies and inflict pain, the people involved feel a profound loss of control over themselves, and they become victims of this parasitic, intelligent vine that operates within them further emphasising this theme of physical and psychological loss. As I stated earlier on, Eric believes a vine is growing inside of him and he actually resorts to self-mutilation in a desperate attempt to remove the perceived threat. And this act of self-harm underscores his desperation and belief that his body is no longer his own. The most direct way body horror can symbolise a loss of identity is through physical transformation. 
Characters undergoing grotesque changes in their appearance, physiology, or anatomy can represent a profound alteration of their sense of self. And this can be both literal and metaphorical. For example, a character turning into a monstrous creature, a zombie, or a cyborg can signify the loss of their former identity and humanity. Body horror often dehumanizes the people involved as they become less human in appearance or behavior due to these transformations. This symbolizes the loss of human identity and even moral compass. Body horror often involves also a character losing control over their bodies and this loss of bodily autonomy is a metaphor for losing control over one's life, choices or destiny. The same as Eric starting to cut open himself. He's losing his control over his body due to this psychological and physical distress. In the Victorian era, plants held a captivating and somewhat perilous allure, and one striking example of this fascination is found in Herbert George Wells' 1894 tale, The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. In this narrative, an orchid collector finds himself under attack by his most recent acquisition, delving into the eerie associations the Victorians held with these captivating flowers, which they often connected with the world of witchcraft. This portrayal of plants gave rise to a peculiar notion that they embody things that were simultaneously devoid of emotion, yet intensely productive, formless yet teeming with life, and ancient yet perfectly adaptable to challenge modernity. Plants that consumed humans, as strange as it may sound, ignited the flames of the Victorian's imagination. But the intrigue doesn't end there. Enter the world of B-movies where narratives revolving around plants, like the Day of the Triffids and The Happening, challenge the conventional portrayal of plants as passive and inert beings. Instead, these films recast plants as active agents, often assuming the roles of antagonists. And the same role is given to the vine in the ruins. These monstrous plants conveyed a sense of otherness that even animals couldn't quite replicate. Yet, intriguingly, these narratives employed a strategy to temper our fear of these botanical monsters. They transmuted back into creatures resembling animals, thus reshaping the hierarchy that traditionally positions humans above animals and animals above plants, much like Aristotle's philosophical theory. These killer plants assumed various forms in fiction, and even when they're not carnivorous, they manifest as symbols of unchecked growth and monstrous reproduction. In the ruins, for instance, the rampant growth is confined to the hill thanks to the strict and ruthless quarantine imposed by the Mayans. So we'll quickly delve into The Day of the Triffids. It's a harrowing tale where Earth falls prey to a perilous species of plants known as the Triffids. These towering mobile carnivorous plants possess a stringer-like appendage that can kill and devour animals, including humans. This narrative unravels the consequences of their existence, especially after a global catastrophe blinds most of the human population. And this blindness is not only literal but metaphorical, and it represents plant blindness, which is very prevalent within Western society. Then The Happening, although not a cinematic masterpiece, ventures into the unsettling territory where nature itself turns against humanity due to our relentless impact on the environment. A similar theme surfaces in the ruins, albeit without a direct commentary on human impact. The Happening initiates with perplexed mass suicide and violent behaviour in the northeastern United States, and initially experts and authorities are stumped, but it soon becomes apparent that the natural environment is the source of these bizarre occurrences. As we follow Elliot Moore, along with Alma and Julian, on their escape from Philadelphia, they encounter an array of disconcerting incidents. 
Their journey unearths this chilling revelation that a calamity is triggering plants to defend themselves with a neurotoxin airborne chemical against perceived human threats, mirroring the acts of carnivorous plants in our world. Now, one thing that Thuvorans does, which is different to other monster plant pop culture, is include the ability for the flowers and the vines to talk. The inclusion of the plants talking and mimicking the trapped youth creates this physical disorientation, psychological deterioration, and a loss of control and lostness. Early in the novel, the characters hear what seems like voices of the missing tourist. However, these voices are distorted and repeat the same phrases in a repetitive and mechanical manner. This repetition unnerves the characters, making them question whether they're hearing real voices or some form of illusion they don't know at this stage is created by the vines. They then begin hearing echoes of laughter, making them feel as if they are being mocked. The vines display a sinister ability to mimic human speech. When the characters communicate with each other, the vines sometimes mimic their words, repeating what they say with this haunting accuracy. The mimicry blurs the lines between reality and illusion, causing the characters to doubt their own sanity, and it also causes conflict between those involved as they struggle to distinguish between their own voices and the voices of the vines, causing internal fights within the group. The vines employ sound strategically to lure the characters into dangerous situations. There's a scene in the 2008 film adaptation where the vines mimic a mobile phone. It's not actually in the book, but the vines use this scene to entrap the characters that are seeking out this noise, this familiar noise of a phone ringing. Now, these incidents involving the vines' use of mimicry and sound manipulation serve to heighten the youth's disorientation, paranoia, and terror, and adds to their overall confusion and unease as they struggle to understand what's happening around them. It becomes difficult for them to locate the exact origin of the voices, which further deepens their sense of being lost within the jungle and themselves. And so we find ourselves at the end of this captivating journey into the realms of plant horror and the idea of tourists being lost. The ruin stands as a testament to the power of nature's mysteries and the horrors that can unfold when one underestimates the forces of the natural world. It leaves us with a haunting sense of being lost, not just within the confines of the jungle, but also in the depths of our own fears and moral uncertainties. And as we emerge from this botanical nightmare, we are reminded that in the face of the unknown, our greatest enemy may not be the world around us, but the darkness within ourselves. I hope you enjoyed this episode as that's all we have time for. And if you've learned something new, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review if you haven't already. Our Instagram is in the description box for even more refreshing content. In the next episode, we'll be unwrapping Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Although the book seems like it will be lighter than the ruins, it definitely won't be. Stay juicy and I look forward to chatting to you next time. Bye.